You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non-competitive. If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Welcome back in Snap Hook. Listeners, part two of this week's Talking Heads special. I am Tim Costello, and he continues to be Scott Barzilla. Absolutely. Um, Before we get into Talking Heads, uh, you know, Tim raised an interesting question. We go back and forth, you know, with ideas, you know, for the show. And he come up with he came up with a great question that I think we both wanted to sink our teeth into. And he asked, "Who was the most dominant athlete, Tiger Woods or Barry Bonds?" And and that's you know, I had to sit there and think about that one. Uh, I had to admit, um, I'm gonna you know toss it over to Tim, let him you know give his answer, and then I can come back afterwards. I, I thought we'd maybe save that one for a little later on, but we'll we'll start off the episode hot. Um, you know, so essentially this came to me. I was I was the other day watching um, the Full Swing show that we kind of teased on the last episode of our podcast. I, by the way, if anyone's wondered if they should watch it, the answer is yes. Um, fantastic show, but they they kind of started talking about how dominant Tiger was. And that it's kind of ruined our expectations of that number one in the world golfer, right? Because realistically, through the history of time, that's been something that ebbs and flows. If if you're hot in the game of golf, you press it and you press it hard for six, seven, maybe eight weeks. And then you cool off a little bit and you go back to what you normally are. But with Tiger, that didn't happen. He He was the number one in the world for... You know, ten years. He he won eighty something tournaments. He was on a whole nother level um, in the majors. And I, I heard a stat that Rom mentioned the other day. If you if you just take Tiger's ninety nine and two thousand seasons alone, he's got like seventeen PGA Tour wins and four majors, which is more than than half the half the big names out there. That's more than Rory. That's more than DJ. You know, that's more than Rom. So that's just two years of his whole career. So that got me thinking, who is the baseball comparison for something like that? You know, who was the guy that, for that stretch of time, was just out and out the best? And and to me, that guy was Barry Bonds. And when you look at Barry Bonds in the, call it the mid-aughts, from 2000 to 2004, I don't think there's ever been a hitter or even, may say, an athlete to do what Barry Bonds did. I mean, he was being walked with the bases loaded because allowing just one run was better than giving up a, a grand slam. You know, during that during that period from 2000 all the way through 2004, you know, he sets the record for home runs in a season with 73. He led the league in walks every single one of those years 
One in 2004, he walked 232 times, only struck out 41. This on-base percentage that year was 609. 60% of the time that Barry Bonds stepped into the batter's box, he was at least walking down to first base. I, I, it's tough to imagine in today's day and age of baseball somebody that good. Because I think we all agree Mike Trout's the, you know, everybody talks about how good Mike Trout is. He still gets pitched to. He still is not a 300 hitter. He doesn't walk at the level that Barry Bonds, I mean, 232 walks. There's guys who don't get 200 hits in a year. There's guys who don't walk 232 times in their career. And Barry Bonds drew that walk, that amount of walks in one season. I it's going to be tough. It's it's it just depends if you're more of a baseball or a golf guy. But to me, Barry Bonds is that guy in baseball that you could at least go toe to toe with Tiger Woods and say my period of dominance was at least equal, if not greater, to your period of dominance. I think where a lot of this, um, and and to start off with the baseball end, um, there is a huge debate on baseball uh, history sites about who was better between Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. And, and this is where I think the question kind of hinges, I think, between him and Tiger Woods in a way, because, you know, Ty Cobb, they used to call it inside baseball, and then, of course, there's the live ball era. Uh, Ty Cobb could hit home runs. He just didn't. Instead, he hit career 360. I think, what is, I want to say 368 for his career. Kind of a, a similar, so like for some of the, the guys who don't know, almost like each row, right? Each row probably could have sit there and hit 20, 25 home runs a season, but it said he chose to be more of an all-around hitter and, and, and shoot the gaps and spray the ball to all fields. And he absolutely, Ty Cobb, you know, in fact, the, the analytics would have hated him because he would run at any time, even when you're not supposed to, especially when you're not supposed to, because he had that belief that I'm just going to catch the other team sleeping. They're going to make a mistake. And, you know, and he was gunned down more than his fair share of times. More than his fair share of times. But, you know, he created extra runs. Then you bring in Babe Ruth, who revolutionized the game. I mean, he's hitting more home runs than teams. And so I think where Barry Bonds is, Barry Bonds is the absolute pinnacle of the steroid era um he he is he you know i think there's been reports that he was jealous of the attention that uh, mcguire and sosa got in 1998 and that's why he started using and he became you know and and what he did and in, in his hitting style is, is he would have like a little small maybe three or four inch by four inch box when when there's no strikes if it wasn't in that box He's not swinging. And the box got a little bit bigger with one strike. And then, you know, became the strike zone with two strikes. And it is such a perfect way that you, you know, to think of the hit, but so few hitters are able, are able to do that. Um, and obviously, you know, he became so dangerous, you know, hitting 73 home runs, you know, 232 walks, which absolutely blew the walks record out of the water. I mean, I want to say it was around 160, 170 was like the record before then in a season. Now, here's where I'm going to go on Tiger Woods, though. Tiger Woods is more of the Babe Ruth figure in golf. 
he absolutely revolutionized the game. And, and really, it happened in two different ways. And, and when I started playing golf, I started playing golf when I was like maybe seven or eight years old. So, and I don't know, you know how old Tim was, but see if this kind of rings any bells. So I had a driver, I had a three wood, three iron, five iron, seven iron, nine iron. Yeah, no, no wedges, no, no even numbers. You, you had like a four or five iron set, right? It wasn't until I was like 13 or 14 years old before metal drivers came out. And it was the most revolutionary thing that ever hit the golf world. Because I was playing with persimmon woods. I was going playing in HGA tournaments with persimmon woods. And, you know, you had like the old-fashioned coil that would come undone uh, at the end of the club head. And so this thing would twist and it would go back and forth. So, I mean, I'm spraying balls left and right. And I'm going like, what the hell? So my dad goes out and he buys me the Burner Plus TaylorMade. Like the very, like the very first, you know, TaylorMade's ever made, you know. That sparkly orange looking driver, the bubble shaft. I remember the club. And and so I'm, a, I'm at the range at Clear Lake, uh, like country club at the time and i couldn't leave the driving range because i was just so excited i was hitting 260 270 within like a five to seven yard window either side every time i was like wait a minute what the hell happened and and i want to you know in the, so the problem is when you're comparing a guy like tiger woods to a guy like jack nicholas you know you have to you know the equipment is just so different i mean it's hard to sit there and look at the game but i think what tiger woods did when i was growing up you did not weight train if you were a golfer that's the last thing you wanted to do because you know you didn't want to get all bulked up where you didn't you weren't limber and all this that what tiger woods did is tiger woods made it possible, you know, to, to take your body to the next level, you know, to do the weight training and to do it, you know, in such an intelligent way where, you know, you're not going to lose any of that flexibility that you're just going to get stronger. And so that's where, you know, he changed the game of golf because he's able to bomb it 330, 340, 350 down the fairway. When, you know, most of the golfers, you know, from the 80s and 90s, you know, if they hit it 300 yards, it's like, damn. Now, there isn't a guy on tour that can't hit it 300. And if you can't, you know, you, you're really, you know, you're going to struggle. And so, I mean, you're, you're changing the way the game is played. Because, you know, the way, the way I played when I was in high school, on a typical par 5, if I'm hitting about 270, 280, I maybe got... 230 into a par five i'm pulling out my three wood and if i hit it flush and just right maybe i got to get a chance to get on the green you know and i have now i think in my lifetime i've had about you know seven or eight eagles there are guys on tour do that in a weekend you know and, and, and if you're counting all four rounds and it because they can hit it they can hit 350 they got 200 yards in. They're hitting six iron. Well, damn. You know, most of us, you know, if you put a six iron in our hand, we could hit the green half the time at least, you know, when we were, you know, playing really good golf. But you stick a three wood in our hand, eh, I don't know. You know, sometimes you might spray it. You know? So 
what Tiger Woods did, Tiger Woods revolutionized the game. And, and the thing is, he had the, the so-called Tiger Slam. And I want everybody to understand, when, they, when we look back at golf history, Bobby Jones has, is the last one to win a Grand Slam. But we have to put air quotes around that because his Grand yeah, Slam. Yeah, I'd like to real quick mention the Grand Slam was at the time that Bobby Jones won, was not the Grand Slam that we think of it as today. You know, Bobby Jones's Grand Slam was the U.S. Open, the U.S. Amateur, the Open Championship in, in England, and the British Amateur. So in two of those tournaments, he's not even beating the best players in the world, right? Because the best players in the world are professional golfers. Right, and and so this is where, and and that's and and that's where I want to you know throw the Tiger conversation forward is that when Jack Nicklaus is winning his eighteen majors or twenty majors, depending on who you want to listen to, because two of those majors were amateurs, you know, U.S. amateurs. So if we want to sit there and say, okay, he won eighteen, who is he beating? How many really good golfers are there at the time? I mean, Arnold Palmer was good in the early sixties. But by the time you get into the 70s, he's really not, you know, he's not on top of his game. We you that. had Watson, you had yeah. Trevino, you had Faldo, you had Norman. I, I think... Well, Faldo and Norman are really more the games. Faldo I Norman. think the top five golfers in the world could always... I think if you gave them the technology and put them in today's world, they're going to compete with the top five golfers. If you gave Greg Norman at 25 today's technology, he'd go out there and compete with all those guys. Well, but right. if you pick the number 100 guy in that tournament versus the 100 guy today, the 100 guy today is heads and tails above the number 100 player on the PGA Tour in the in the 70s. Right, and, and, and Faldo and, and Norman were really 80s guys, you know, because I really liked, you know, Faldo, I, you know, I kind of liked... Growing up, uh, my favorite, you know, in the '80s was Seve Ballesteros. I mean, he was, you know, just uh, uh, had that uh, charisma. And, and but back in the '70s, I mean, you're talking, you know, you're talking Trevino, you're talking Watson, Palmer, really not much in the '70s. Johnny Miller, for a while, for like a minute, yeah. like because you know the thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is like you you talked about you know golfers getting hot for six or seven weeks. Um, the greatest example of this is probably Jordan Spieth. You know, he had that uh, one year a few years ago where he won two majors. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, man, this guy, you know, he maybe he's going to make a run at Tiger. What has he done since? Um, and so it's it's very hard, you know, to predict. Like, you know, right now John Rahm is, is the guy. But how long is he going to be the guy? I mean, it's hard to say. And the thing is, there are so many of those good golfers right now. I mean, right now, I would say there's probably 30 or 40 golfers that you could stick out in Augusta. Or you can stick at a U.S. Open or a British Open or a PGA Championship. And you can sit there and say, I could see a very real possibility of this guy winning it. But back in the 70s, once you got outside the top 10, I don't know. I mean... That, that, I, I swear you're right. The, the, the depth of field nowadays compared to the depth of field in, in Nicholas's time is, is drastically different. You know, when not too long ago, Max Homo was, what, the number 40 or 50th ranked player in the world? And now look at him. You know, this is a guy that if he wins at Augusta in a month or so, uh, it's not unbelievable. You know, and there's that's, that's the Tiger effect to me is the reason, like, Tiger made the field stronger. Tiger is the reason that 
kids started playing golf and all that. We, we've talked about that before. I, I think to me, Scott, the one comparison, num- the comparison number that when you look at Bonds, to me, the, the, the show of his dominance is the walks. The, the fact that you just don't want to pitch to the guy. To me, the, the thing that was dominant about Tiger was in a major when he started with a when he had a 54 hole lead up until like the I think it was 2010 or 2011 PJ PJ Championship, he was like 14 for 14 and getting the job done. I mean, guys just did not want to play with him because they couldn't stand the heat. And to me, that's what made that's that's that comparison to Bonds is where all of a sudden if you're in a group with this guy, you just can't get it done. You know, all of a sudden, Barry Bonds in the batter's box, game on the line, and you just don't want to. You don't want to deal with them. Yeah, I think what's unfortunate about both of those you know, figures is that you know you mentioned the fact that so many people started playing golf because of Tiger Woods. So many people. I mean, he he had just had an impact. I mean, he when he came on the scene in the in the, in the late '90s. I mean, I would you know I was always you know playing golf, but you know we were. We would emulate he, our. He's to play the game. I got my first set of clubs at ten, and two thousand, right after you know, right in the middle of everything. I I studied his swing and took it to the range and tried to completely replicate it for hours at a time. Tiger Woods is the reason I still play golf today. And we would emulate, you know, and we would emulate our heroes, you know, before Tiger Woods came along. I mean, I remember when uh, Ben Crenshaw won his second Masters. I immediately went out and bought his putter. Probably the dumbest thing I've, you know, expenditure I've made. The Cleveland Blade? Yeah, that it, it, it didn't work out for me. But, you know, it, we do, I mean, and you, you, you track these guys, you know, who's playing TaylorMade, who's playing Callaway, who's playing, you know, Nike, who's playing Ping, who's playing. And so, but I think Tiger Woods, I think not only the fact that he was so dominant, but where he came from, from humble beginnings. He, you know, he wasn't, he didn't come from, you know, a country club background. I think that was huge. I think the problem with Barry Bonds is that people just can't relate to him. I mean, and he's not in the game. And then to me, I think he served as the Marlins hitting coach for like a year. And to me, you cannot, you cannot give me anybody, especially after, you know, Tony Gwynn passed away. Anybody alive today who knows more about hitting than Barry Bonds, uh, you know, going back to that, you know, his strategy of, you know, going with a small box, you know, and then having it bigger as, you know, he gets, you know, one, two strikes. That's such a simple idea. And so few people are able to execute that. It is, it's, 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 it's rudimentary, Watson, right? Like, it really is a pretty thought, pretty easy thought process. We talked about this, I think it was last week when we talked about the Texans' possible coaching hires and, like, why I personally think that guys who are superstars struggle to coach is because something that was so easy for them to do, uh, is really hard to coach. And, and for someone like Barry Bonds, like, yeah, it's easy to have that small zone and it's easy to, um, you know, kind of pitch hunt or, or hunt in an area of the zone. And there are guys who, you know, are elite hitters who have been able to take that strategy and, and have success with it. I, I look at Jose Altuve, you know, starting in, in 2017, he really stopped being the free swinger and started, um, you know, really hunting for certain pitches and certain counts and, and swinging at less parts of the zone. So it is an effective strategy, but it, it's something that you've got to have 
the quick hands to be able to do. You've got to have the hand-eye coordination to be able to do. And no matter how many steroids Barry Bonds may or, or may not have done, you know, obviously people point to that he never failed the test, but, you know, definitely fails the eye test. But realistically, he still had to see ball, hit ball. And no one in my lifetime, you know, maybe Toby Gwynn, but I, I didn't get to watch a ton of Tony Gwynn. He, I remember the 98 NLDS against the Padres, but for negative reasons. But besides maybe Tony Gwynn, no one was better at putting the bat to the ball than Barry Bonds. You know, it just so happened he added power to it as he juiced up, but he was a Hall of Famer before he, he became a monster home run hitter. So it's just hard for those guys who are superstars to be able to coach that. When, but, I, but to get back to the conversation of dominance, I, th- I think it, it comes down to this, because I, I do think it's Tiger. But it comes down to this for me. When you're telling this the history, the story of the history of the game, you can't leave Tiger Woods out. You can't. I don't think if you if you don't mention Barry Bonds, it dilutes the history of the game of baseball. I, I love Barry, but Barry didn't change the game. Barry didn't do anything to to bring in young. Like you can't draw parallels from uh, Mookie Betts to Barry Bonds, right? But you can draw parallels from Tony Finau to Tiger Woods, from Her- from from. Uh, Varner to Tiger Woods, from Max Homa to Tiger You can draw these straight parallels. You, you know, Justin Thomas. You don't have that with Barry Barnes. He didn't, and, you know, Tiger was so good, they had to change the golf course. You know, Augusta National, after he ripped it up in 1997, had to add, like, a 1,000 yards to the course. And it's continued to have yardage added because of, of what Tiger and, you know, working out and technology has done. But... I mean, if you, it's Tiger. It really is. I wanted to find a way to make it seem like Barry was there, but I just don't think there's any any run in sports that can really compare to the level of dominance Tiger had. I tried to give it with Bonds. I think he's the closest in terms of a baseball player because for that six-year stretch, there was no better hitter on the planet than Barry Bonds. But, I mean, for Tiger, it was more than six years, right, for for 10 years, how, there, every major was Tiger or the field. The bet was Tiger or the field. One guy versus 154 other ones. That was never the case with Barry. Yeah, we, we actually we promised uh, announcer talk, so I'm, I'm going to shift us back after I finish this. But you know, the, the one, it, the baseball comparison I would make uh, historically, Barry Bonds, is Sandy Koufax. Um, between about 1961, 1962, and 1966, there was not a better pitcher in baseball. Far not. I mean, he he's striking out 300-plus hitters. His ERA is like two, under two. I mean, he's he won like, I think, two or three Cy Youngs, and that was back in the days when they were only giving away one, you know, in both leagues. But... Yeah, and that, and, but I think, you know, Barry has a better other half of his career. I mean, the other half of his career, he's he's on pace to go 500 home runs, 500 steals if he had continued on in his track, which I, you know, almost, you know, wish he had done. Because then it, would, it wouldn't have been any of this, well, you know, you know, bloviating about, you know, is he really a Hall of Famer? It's like you, 
the Baseball Hall of Fame is a museum. The Golf Hall of Fame is a museum. You cannot have a museum without Barry Bonds in it. It's, I mean, it's like people want to keep Pete Rose out of a museum. The all-time hits came. It's like uh, maybe a sports scumbag, which, by the way, we're going to have sports scumbags this week, so you know, stay tuned uh, as we keep talking. But Barry, yeah, that, that, that period of time between 2000, maybe 99, and uh, you know, 2004, 2005, because he started to break down there at the end about 2005. You know, that period, five or six years, I will put up against Roos 1920s, Ted Williams, pick it any period you want to. Um, if you want to sit there and say Luke Gehrig, if you want to sit there and say Ty Cobb. I mean, you can put it with Gwynn. Those five years, you can put his, his strikeout numbers right up against Tony Gwynn's for that stretch. Okay. I'm going to lead us off here. I'm going to throw us into this thing. Because this is one where I think, you know, we might have a battle on our hands. Milo Hamilton. So where are you on Milo Hamilton? Milo's my guy. You know, as we get into sports broadcasting talk, I went to school to be a broadcaster. I was a minor league broadcaster for a few years before the pandemic. And that was because of Milo Hamilton. To me, baseball sounds like Milo. And part of it goes into, if you listen to, to part one of this week's episode, um, you know, the regionality of baseball lends itself for you to fall in love with your local guy. That being said, I don't like every broadcaster the Astros have brought on. You know, I, the, um, the, the period between Robert Ford and, and Milo to me was a, was a dark age. But Milo Hamilton, I think, was, was one of those guys that you can close your eyes and you can see everything that's happening. I felt, to me, Milo's not someone who tries to insert himself into the game. He didn't try and be bigger than the game. He knew that you were turning, tuning in to listen to the Astros, and he was going to give that to you. Um, I, I thought he was just absolutely phenomenal. I was lucky enough to uh, have an opportunity to meet him right before he passed away. Put my foot in my mouth, blew it, but I did get a chance to meet him. Yeah, Milo, actually, Milo, in a weird kind of way, brought my dad and I together. Um, because, you know, we would listen, if we were driving around town, listening to the Astros games, let's just say we turn it on the third inning. My dad and I got to play a great game of guess the score. Because Milo would go about three or four innings before he would tell you what the score is. If you weren't there for the beginning, you know, first pitch, you had no idea. But, you know, he'd, he'd sprinkle in some clues. You know, he'd go like, and Bill Doran scored the Astros' first run. Say, like, okay, so we have more than one. Okay, well, or we can, you know, and he's clinging to a one-run lead. Okay, no, we scored more than one, and we have a one-run lead. Okay, two to one, three to two, what do you got? Um, my, uh, the thing is with, with baseball announcers, I think, and, and this is going to be the same with basketball and football as well. With local announcers, you can go one down one or two roads. You can go down the the Homer Road, which I am you know I am a part of the team. I am rooting for the team. Every call against our team is a horrible call. You know everything our our team does is great. Or you can go with the straight broadcasting. Now, when I grew up, the first announcer I heard was Gene Elston. 
And so therefore, you know, I, I had a, a different, and Gene Elston is kind of a different, you know, you mentioned the, the period in between. I actually, I got to meet uh, Dave Raymond. Uh, That's the uh, guy I don't like. That um, was the worst broadcaster in Astros history. The problem that they had is that they hired two play-by-play guys to sit next to each other. And so, you know, to me, Dave Raymond, he's actually gone up and he's doing Ranger games now. Um, yeah. I knew uh, they were hurting when you're promoting Dave Raymond as your uh, as your play-by-play guy. And he, well, you know, and he was a really nice guy in person. Um, and, and I didn't get a chance to meet Milo and I didn't get a chance to meet um, uh, Ford, obviously. But to me, and, and, and obviously you probably didn't have a color guy. Um, uh, interns, I, I, uh, my interns are my color guys at home, not on the road. A color guy, and to me, my favorite. If you're asking me, my favorite Astros announcers, my favorite team, and I'm actually going to go away from radio. And the team of Bill Brown and Jim Deshays. Oh, Bill Brown and Jim Deshays were fantastic. And Bill Brown, and I don't know if you have a, had a chance to meet him. He is the absolute nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. I remember my first Sabre meeting I went to, he was the only one there. And he actually came up to me and introduced himself. You know, I'm Bill Brown. It's like, yeah, I know who you are. You know, watch Somewhere out. in this office, I have a book that he wrote about the history of the Astros that, uh, that Ira gave me that, that Bill Brown signed for me. Jim Deshays, to me, and, and color commentating, I think, obviously is not as labor intensive as play by play. But I think it's something that's difficult to do well. Because, you know, you have to balance the need to, number one, you know, fill dead space. You have to fill the need to explain things, but not overly explain things. And then, of course, when you get in former players, you know, they want to talk about how great they were, how great, you know, it was. And the one I liked about Jim Deshays is that he he laughed at himself all the time talking about how horrible this was a self-deprecator he he knew he was he was a guy who was there to frame pitches and not hit and he he leaned into that yeah and that's um and that's why i liked him larry uh, larry durker you know watched him i didn't like him quite as much and and i really think and i've you know he's the chapter's named after him and so you know we've met you know several times and, and he, i'm sorry to say that i think he actually had a personality change after his seizure um, that he had towards the end of his, his career as a manager. Um, and I always joked, I, I wish that they had tried having him stay in the booth and be a manager at the same time and see how funny it would be. Like, I think the managers are going to try and steal here. Why did these guys keep getting thrown out? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and so, I mean, but I liked him, but Bill Brown, you know, I liked I like more, my personal style is more straight announcing, more, you know, I'm just going to give you the facts. Like, you know, I know Mark Vandermeer has been, you know, the Texans play-by-play announcer, and he, you know, and he's a homer. And some, because sometimes I think you kind of lose your credibility after a while. Real quick on Milo, just because I think he's one of those guys, it's hard to tell the story of baseball without Milo Hamilton. He is... He's the Forrest Gump of Major League Baseball broadcasting sometimes when you look at what Milo's been on the microphone for. First big league gig, really, 1966 with the Milwaukee Braves. He eventually is on the air for uh, the 715th home run of Hank Aaron in 1974. He then moves to the We Are Family Pirates. Uh, gets another. He gets a World Series ring with the Pirates. He then moves to the Chicago Cubs where he was... 
there for quite a long time. He um, got into a fight with Harry Carey. I mean, again, yeah. then he goes to the Astros, and he's there from like 86 till 2006 was his last season where he was not going on the road anymore. Um, and then he stayed with the team through 2012. So from 86 through 2012, he was the Astros guy. But, I mean, he he was there for Hank Aaron's home run. Then he goes to the We Are Family Pirates. Then he gets into a fight with Harry Carey, like the most Saturday Live famous guy of all time. Then he goes and he gets no he, – he sees no hitters with the Astros. He's got Nolan Ryan. He's got Mike Scott. He's got uh, the walk-off home run in 2005 from Chris Burke. I mean, this guy's – moments in his career are pretty spectacular. Everyone can, you can say what you want about the style. I do remember the, the what's the score Milo game used to, used to play growing up. Uh, but, you know, speaking of color guys, I, I don't think Jeff Blum gets enough run as a fantastic color guy because I've, I've done color part of, um, you know, coming up as a broadcaster, the, the intern does color, and then you get your three innings of play-by-play while the main guy steps out to stretch his legs. Um, so I, I understand quite a bit of what it is to be a good color guy. You've got to blend the humor, the little self-deprecating. But the hardest part is is getting in and making your point and getting out in enough time that that play-by-play guy doesn't miss any of the action. And the chemistry that Todd Callis Blum and Julia Morales have on their on their broadcast to me is fantastic. Yeah, they're a little bit of homers, but you know what? I'm a homer too, and I'm tuning into my team's broadcast. They do a good job. They're not all the way, you know, homer-ish, but I think when you are the Astros broadcaster and some of the things that have been happening to the Astros, our fan base and our community really turned inward after like 2019, 2020, so you almost had to be a little bit more us versus them. But I, I've met Blum a couple times. Blum has been helpful in my broadcasting career. He's someone who told me, feel free to email me and ask me any questions. He listened to my reel. Um, so maybe I'm a little biased there. But I just, I love Jeff Blum. And, you know, the, the segment he had, <coughs> pardon me, two years ago, when he would just roll through the uh, studio where they would do the, the rooms, rooms to go uh, in-game look around the league. And then you'd see Jeff Blum rolling behind them in the chair that was hilarious and that's the kind of stuff that you know you, you can't take life too seriously it's a game and blum really kind of understood that or does understand that in my opinion it's this definitely a craft um and i think it, everybody do yourself a favor and take a look and, and do a deep dive into that whole harry carey and milo hamilton spat because it is just it's fascinating and, and milo I, you know, obviously I kind of dogged on him, but the dude lived through leukemia. He had leukemia. And so he had to take some time off broadcasting. And Harry Carey was absolutely the biggest jerk in the world, you know, sitting there giving him a hard time uh, for taking time off for leukemia. Yeah, I think I would have, you know, I would have punched him in the face myself, you know, if that, if that were me. Um which, you know, kind of a six degree of separa- uh, separation here. I worked for the Astros for two summers. I worked in uh, 91 and 92. I was a part-time grounds crew. So I was the guy in the sixth inning that runs out with the base, puts the bag in, second base, rakes around the dirt, you know, comes back in. So 
you know, we got to hang out behind home plate. And I could sit there and I can honestly say that Harry Carey spit on me. Uh, he didn't mean to. Uh, I mean, he wasn't, you know, insulting me, but that's how he, he talked at the time. And, you know, the funny thing, you just, and one thing I, I do like and I do appreciate about Milo is that Milo did not wait until too late to quit. Uh, Harry Carey, it, it was it was sad at the end. I remember one particular game, he's got Steve Stone as his play-by-play, uh, as his color guy, and he's going, you know, Steve, Danny Schaefer used to be a catcher in the Cardinals organization. And Steve's like, uh, Harry, Danny Schaefer is currently catching today for the Cardinals. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Um, but I think... Steve, real quick, there's a great Harry Carey story where um, Cubs day game, not a lot of people in the crowd, young couple vigorously going at it in the seats, making out, groping, all of it. And uh, the, the camera's right on him. And Harry Carey just starts talking about how she's got two balls in his ha- in her hand. The whole, like, and he's live on air just breaking down this makeout session. And then, like, they're like, Harry, you, you got to get back to the game. But, oh, yeah, two balls, two balls, uh, two balls and a strike. And it's just like, I mean, the, you're right. He waited too long. When, when Saturday Night Live is making fun of you for the character of yourself, like, as a broadcaster, our goal was always to never be bigger than the game. You are you are there to get the game to the people who can't be there. Harry Carey was one of those guys. He's a legend of the game. I think he got a little bigger than the game at, at, towards the end. There, he was the celebrity, not the Cubs. I was going to tell. You, I was going to tell this, you know, because I, I know you'll appreciate this. Because um, I do think there is growth that happens in announcing, and and I think the big, best example I can think of of that is Steve Sparks, uh, who is the radio color guy. When when he was first starting, and and they would do that thing that Tim mentioned, where you know. Ford takes an inning or two off. It's typically uh, one, two, three is Ford, four, five, six is Sparks, and then they go seven, eight, nine is is typically the broadcaster schedule. So uh, you you know the whole Major League series. So one of my favorite scenes in Major League Two is when Bob Euchre, um, Harry Doyle is his, the character's name. I mean, he is just sauced. He's drunk. And he says, Monty. Well, the best part is he starts the season with a bottle of Evian water because he's so so looking forward to not drinking, having a good baseball team. You see him pouring the Evian water in a glass, and then like three innings in, out comes the Jack Daniels, and he starts getting wasted. Like, and Monty, Monty's his commentator. Oh, I love it. He says, Monty, I'm in the bag. And so Monty's got to take over. <laughs> and you see this line drive. Guy dives like five feet to catch the ball, and he just goes, Fly ball, caught. <laughs> That's one of my favorite. And then the first one, he like comes in with like one quick word, and Harry Doyle switches back over. Dynamite color commentary, Monty. That broadcasting school really paid off. <laughs> yeah, that was from the first movie, I think. But that was, uh, but that's where Steve Sparse was at the beginning. Um, he's another guy that loves to have fun. I mean, when they've when they've done the uh, the celebrations in the uh, in the clubhouse when they've clinched the division, I there's mean, nothing like drunk sparks on air getting just blasted with beer. So you know, and I think you mentioned you know the difference between regional guys and national guys, and I think 
And my problem is, is that I can't really appreciate the callous and blub team because I can't watch my Astros on TV um, because we're blacked out. I did see a couple of the Apple games last year, and those were just... Oh, and then there was one inning where they just turned off the sound. And there's well, at one point, they were talking about how many players choose to wear white cleats. I don't know. Why don't more players wear white cleats? I'm like, is there nothing more that you can bring to this conversation besides the fashion choices of like, how, how about like some stat? I mean, when I was interning for the Sugarland Skeeters, every day my job was to put together the game notes for Ira, who is the home broadcaster, uh, as well as the other team's broadcaster. So for anybody who doesn't know the dynamics of broadcasting, we don't pull these stats out of our asses. There is five to 10 pages of notes that have these little tidbits in there, you know, Badwell is five for five in his last, you know, runners on third less than two out scenarios with two home runs. It, whatever it is, right? You have to take the time to put that stuff together. The team does it. They give it to you. The Astros have a media guy who his whole job is to put that stat pack together. They have that information. And instead, they don't use it. They don't go into that stuff because they know it sounds unnatural. You know, I think one of the, the best examples is Vin Scully, Dodgers guy, right? He was the Dodgers broadcaster, legendary broadcaster. He's one of those guys that you hear his voice, you know it's Vin Scully. But I think there was a marketed difference because Vin Scully used to do Dodgers games, and then he'd do the Saturday Fox game as well, the, the game of the week. There was a difference in Vin Scully on the national game versus Vin Scully on the Dodgers game. Vin Scully is, is, is more reliant on that game notes, the stat sheets, when you just don't know the team. And you're reliant on the people who put those notes together versus, you know, when I travel with a team, uh, you know, we'll use myself as the example. I know this guy's hot and I'm going to call my intern and I'm going to say, hey, in the game notes tomorrow, Jose Cermo's hot as hell. I need you to look up his last nine games and, and give me those stats because I am with that team every day and I see it. When you're not, you're reliant on somebody else's interpretation of the game and you're stuck with the stats that they give you if you don't do your own research. And then at that point, you don't feel comfortable using those stats because it's it's not something that you are aware of. You don't know to look at that information that's right in front of you. The next thing you know, you're, you're talking about cleat color. Yeah, I, I think the worst moment was actually the best moment that they had. was It was, they were, um, it was the very first series on the road. Because you know he had, they were playing in, in L.A. or Anaheim, whichever one you want to go with. They're playing the Angels. Jeremy Pena hits his first home run of his career, and we had this moment where it's like, well, do we show the home run, or do we show the fact that our sideline reporter is talking with his family? So, do we go live with the family or live with the home run? I mean, well, I remember it was one year, like there was a Super Bowl where I think it was the 49ers and the Chargers were in the Super Bowl. The 49ers are killing the Chargers. And so we're about to have the Gatorade bath. And it's like, okay, let's do the Gatorade bath live, but we'll do the touchdown that the Chargers are currently scoring on replay. And you're like, uh, okay, what are we doing? But I think, yeah, your point, your point about, you know, knowing the teams, I think is where it and, is really where it's at. And, and what brought this discussion on for me is that Tim McCarver passed this last week, a uh, famous, you know, 
color guy on national, you know, national games. My least favorite announcer, and this is the the saddest thing to me, was Joe Morgan. Because there was there is no sadder thing seeing somebody who was great because he got on base, had power, stole bases, got on base, got on base, got on base. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, as a broadcaster, he's decrying walks. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? I think he goes up there for me. So I didn't, I didn't hate Joe Morgan just because of the familiarity, because he was on Sunday Night Baseball, right? Like he didn't really pay attention to it at the, at the time that I was watching it. But, you know, you mentioned how you and your dad would joke about Milo. For me and my dad, it was David Justice. Like we could, not, we could not figure out what conversation David Justice had with anyone that they're like, this should be a guy on microphone. You know, he. You want to talk about bringing absolutely nothing to a game? I, I have to think in the history of color commentators, he is in the bottom one percent. He was on national games. You could tell this guy didn't do his research. You could tell he just showed up, took the stat pack, and was going to run with it. And when you're doing a national game of the week, when you're doing Sunday night baseball, you have a responsibility to do your homework. You know, say what you want about uh, Tony Romo or or Jim Nance or or uh, Joe Buck. They do their homework. I don't like Joe Buck. I don't think he's a good broadcaster. But I know that at least Joe Buck put the work in Monday through Saturday to make sure that when he shows up on air on Sunday, he's not going to make an ass out of himself. I don't love the things he chooses to talk about, the, the love fest that he has for Juan Soto on air. But either way, I know that Joe Buck at least is prepared to be in that booth. And it was, as a kid, even like a 10, 12-year-old kid, I didn't even know I wanted to be a broadcaster yet, but I knew that David Justice sucked. And I think the best decision that you know they've made in broadcasting is they, they what they used to do is they used to have you know the team, the team guy do the national, you know especially in playoff time. So my and and, and I'm going to exaggerate this to make a point. Um, so you know if you look this up, you know and you're going to sit there and say hey, Barzola, you're wrong. Watching the 1993 NBA Finals, Marv Albert, the Knicks announcer, is NBC's announcer. And they're sitting there at halftime. One of the game, it was like game five, something like that. It's the game, game in New York. And it's like, we're at halftime. Akeem Olajuwon has 20 points, eight rebounds, and three blocks. Patrick Ewing's got six points, two rebounds, and a block. Patrick Ewing is clearly outplaying Akeem Olajuwon in this game. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell are you watching? Um, I mean, at one point he was like, yes, and the Rockets lose. And you're like, Dude, really? <laughs> I mean, they they finally started, you know, moving to national announcers. And I think, you know, Joe Buck is kind of a sanitized announcer. He's he's not going to offend anybody. Um, he's not going to, but, you know, nobody's going to fall in love with him either. He, he's, he's a guy. And if you want, you know, if you want a guy who is not bigger than the game, you know, I guess that's, you know, that's a good guy to have. Tony Romo, for me, kind of skates on the edge sometimes there. Romo was a guy who came in hot, but has done nothing to better himself since he got there. I, I You know, when Romo came in, he was so fresh off playing, he could read defenses and he knew um, 
what was going on. Now, pretty much his most common phrase is, well, here we go. Like, that's literally like he's getting ready for plays. Like, here we go. And it's just like you have no addition to besides, uh, here we go. Like, no, he, he doesn't. I think Greg Olson is a guy right now who just did a fantastic job for the NFL. He, and that's, and to me, that's what's interesting, Scott, is there are no home TV broadcasters for the NFL, right? It's all national guys. And so I think, you know, in the NFL, you don't, you don't get used to a guy. You know, you don't see the same guy more than four or five times a year because they switch it up on you versus in baseball, you're so in your own ecosystem. Same for basketball too, right? Like I listened to Bill Worrell call Rockets games most of my life. Like that is what the Houston Rockets sounded like was Bill Worrell. And so I didn't, you know, I watched a little TNT here or there with the Rockets were on, but, you know, part of being a Houston fan is you don't really get selected for those primetime games very much, no matter the sport. But, you know, it's, you don't, you don't listen to the football on the radio very often. You know, it's, it's as, as I like Mark Vandermeer. I think he does a good job. Yeah, he's a homer, but you have to be a homer if you're the radio guy because there is no home TV broadcast for football. It's all national broadcasters. Assignment comes out. Hey, you're going to Houston. You're going to Pittsburgh. You're going to Philly. Whatever it may be. Uh, whereas the radio, you're the only you're the only one they have. And so that's where I think that difference comes into it with football is. There is everything's a national broadcast essentially. You have tiers, right? Like you're the tier one guy, you're the tier two guy, but at the end of the day, you're still not with the Texans week in and week out. Well, and and there are two key differences there, and I think number one, you know, you mentioned the schedule, and I think that's huge. You know, and if I'm even the fifth string CBS crew, I've got six days to prepare for that game. If I'm covering, you know. You're covering the air dog, and I'm covering, you know, the, the, the Skeeters or, you know, Space Cowboys. I, you know, two or three days, I'm playing another team. You know, it, that's harder to prepare for. I think with color commentating, because this is where, you know, we get into Tony Romo territory, this is where it is so hard because then this is the second point is those former players, I think, have a hard time because especially when they're just off the field. They played with some of those guys. They played against some of those guys. And sometimes they have a hard time criticizing them when, you know, the criticism should really be there. And, and, and so, and, and there's innate comments. Like Bill Worrell had, you know, one of the most innate comments when he was doing the Astros. One time he said, though, you know, the Astros seem to ground into a lot of double plays with the man on first base. And it's like, really, Bill? Did you come up with that all by yourself there? But, but you know, my all-time favorite was, you know, we're sitting there. I was watching the galleryfurniture.com bowls, uh, TCU and A&M. This is years ago. And the color commentator says, well, I think they're going to run it or pass it here. It's like, really? How about a quick kick? You know, maybe to try that one. <laughs> I mean, let's not lean out too far. So I think the key is, is that with those guys, you know, and this is going to be what's interesting going to be about Tom Brady, you know, when he finally enters into the game. And I think Greg Olson's done a pretty good job so far is you have to take a you have to take a leap and you have to criticize some guys. I mean it's one thing for Tony Romer to sit there and say this is the play they're running. Well, is that the play they should be running? You know, what do, what do you say? You know, is, is he gonna come out and sit there and say, hey, I used to, you know, play for this guy, but you know what? This is not the right call right now. You know, sometimes we need to hear that. 
But for those former players and, you know, the former coaches, you know, like when Sean Payton was getting in, that's hard for them to do because, you know, might they get back into coaching? I don't know. So I don't want to go out on a limb and insult somebody too much because what are we going to do? I, I think I think golf doesn't get enough credit for doing exactly what you said right there is, is questioning some decision making, right? Because you've got the same setup. You've got Jim Nance as the play-by-play guy, and, and for the longest time it was Nick Faldo in the booth. And you would literally hear Nick Faldo go, I don't know why he's hitting this shot right here. This is the wrong play. He should lay up. Or, hey, he's only this far out. What's he hitting? The they have no problem hopping on air and questioning a player's decision versus, you're right, when has Tony Romo ever said, looks like they're going to run the ball here? I don't know. I don't think that's the right choice. They could hit him hard with a play action and probably go over the top. You don't hear that. Um, I think part of it's, you know, just what we're used to hearing. I, but part of it is, you're right. They, they have relationships with these guys, and they're just not willing to jeopardize the access that they get or, or kind of have hurt feelings along the way. But when you talk about color commentators, I Nick Fowler was someone for me who, you know, he did 15, 20 years on CBS, um, there for some of the biggest calls of all time. And again, he's, he's a guy who did it at the highest level, understands all of what these guys are going through, and did a really nice job of kind of helping us at home, especially those who don't play golf at a high level, understand some of the difficulty and the shots that these guys were hitting. Yeah, I I wanted to tell a quick Jim Nance. I'm, I know you know this story, but uh, for our listeners, you know, may not know the story. Back I think ninety two, I think is when Fred Couples won the Masters. Fred Couples and Jim Nance were roommates at the University of Houston. Teammates. Yeah, teammates. Jim was on that UH golf team and roomed together. I think. And so there's Jim Nance interviewing his former roommate you know, master's champion. And I think they, you know, the story was they both broke down crying and they had to you know, like stop filming and then come back a little bit later, you know, cause I mean, it was just a huge moment for both of them, you know, cause obviously Jim Nance went one way and, you know, Fred couples went another way, but you know, they both reached the pinnacle of their profession. Uh, Real quick, Scott, here's something a lot of people didn't know. For the longest time, the PJ Tour booth was a University of Houston Cougar booth. Nick Falva played his collegiate golf at the University of Houston and then left after like a year or two to go pro. But with Jim Nance and Falva in the booth, that was a full Cougar booth. My guy for a while, um, you know, Gary McCord was, you know, it was funny. I loved, uh, I loved Gary McCord. Um, but Faraday was my guy. Um, and, and I remember having this, you know, computer game. You know, golf game, and it was just it, it had the the, the Faraday was the uh, commentator, you know, for the golf. You know, you'd hit shots, and he'd sit there and say that has neither the furtherance nor the towards. <laughs> and and it's like, but I remember, you know, one time I think I chilly dipped the chip and had this guy sitting there going, "Can't breathe, joking," <laughs> and I just busted out laughing. I mean, it was the funniest thing. And and he actually wrote a novel. I, I wish I, I I need to pick up that novel about a um, you know two uh, rivaling country clubs that would battle for what they called the digit, which was a um, a saint relic, you know, like a, a finger bone. I think it was, and they you know like one um, 
one club had to have, you know, they had to have women as a part of the club. And so one of the guys agreed to have a sex change so that they could, you know, um, <laughs> so that they could follow. I mean, it was just, he's a hilarious guy. Um, I used to look forward to his monthly column. It was, he was the last page of the magazine every month in golf magazine. And I literally, as soon as I got my magazine in the mail, I would flip to the last page first to read David Faraday's column before I would read anything else in the magazine because it was going to be something different. It was going to be funny and it was going to be something, a fresh take on the game that wasn't what was normally talked about in golf magazine. Yeah. My, my guy, as far as reading stuff was uh, Dan Jenkins cause he's a fellow TCU alum. My favorite story of his was when he was talking about when he was the number one golfer at, uh, at TCU and he was playing, you know, in the conference championship against Morris Williams Jr. And there was, you know, a golf course named after Morris Williams Jr. in Austin where the state championship was actually played for a long time before they ended up tearing it down. And he told the story how he's got like two or three holes left. They're even, right? Jenkins nails it in the middle of the fairway. Morris Williams slices it in the rough. Jenkins hits his iron shot within six inches of the hole. So he's like, I'm going to birdie this hole. I'm going to win the conference championship. I'm going to go pro. I'm going to get me a courtesy car. And I'm, I'm just going to go in style. Morris Williams Jr. from the rough cans it for an eagle. Wins the conference championship by one stroke. Um, but, you know, he, he talked about the fact that he, you know, he gained a bunch of weight, quit golf. Then he came back. He golfed with Roger Malthy a lot. And he said he developed the shanks. And so he went to Roger Malthy, says, how do I you know, get rid of the shanks? And he said, hit it left. Says, okay, now i got to figure out how to stop hitting it left. <laughs> I mean, he was just a funny guy. Um, he actually wrote a, a screenplay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Dead Solid Perfect with Randy Quaid. Um, kind of an entertaining movie, uh, but he wrote the screenplay for that. So, I mean, uh, yeah, we could talk golf announcers here for, for days probably. I think the last one I want to get in there is, is Vern Lundquist. Um, you know, in your life, have you ever seen a shot like that? I mean, he's just got so many classic calls that when you go through and look at greatest shots of all time, you're going to hear his voice. You're going to hear Johnny Miller's voice a lot. He was on NBC's coverage for a long time. Um, I think there's a lot of things that golf broadcasts can do better as far as showing shots and, you know, who they cover on a course, but I do think at least um, they they do a really nice job of, of the guys they have in a booth and um, not necessarily holding back. They, they're willing to call out a player. They're willing to say, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that, or what was he thinking there? I still remember after Mito Pereira hit it in the water on 18 this year at the PGA Championship, the guys on the air are going, why is he hitting driver there? What do you do? And hit three wood, hit three wood. And, you know, we, we talk about movies – you know, you think about Tin Cop, right? Where oh, gosh. As he's on air, the broadcasters are like, what is he doing? Why is he hit this shot? Even John Daly hit it in the water. But that was an accurate representation. Like, if, if you were in that same scenario in a real-life tournament and you're 305 out pulling out three wood trying to carry water, I have to think that uh, Trevor, Immelman, Trevor Immelman, who's in the booth now, would be going, what in the world is this guy doing here? He's going to blow the tournament. And, and that's the nice thing about golf is that they're not afraid to hold back in that sense. 
Oh, I love. I mean, I love that. You know, one of the earlier scenes, not the last scene where he's you know, hitting shot after shot, but one of the earlier rounds, he's like, you know, the Ten Cups is like, this is where Ken Venturi is telling me that I should lay up in this Chicharron. Well, what does he know? He just won this tournament before you were born, <laughs> and that was always my favorite part because you're you know talking about the Tiger Woods, um, the legacy and all that, and and it's one of the great things about golf, I think, and about sports in general, because he's sitting there like. Tin Cup is at the end of the movie. Hey, if I eagle this thing, I'm ten under. Nobody's yeah, but no one's ever shot ten under in the U.S. Open before. It's like it is. That'll make me immortal. It's like no, you idiot. Winning the Open makes you immortal. I mean, everybody remembers Lee Jansen. He didn't do much after he won his you know two U.S. Opens. Andy North. Uh, that was the famous uh, T.T. Chen double hit. You know, uh, I'm sure you've seen YouTube uh, uh, videos of that, but I, I was watching that live. Uh, and that was just tough to watch. Uh, but yeah, Andy North is a another commentator. Won the Open. Didn't do much else. I mean, you have guys, I mean, John Daly's a perfect example. He's one of, you know, he's one of PGA. He's won a, a British Open. Didn't but I think he's a perfect example for what actually happened at the end of 10 Cup, right? Because uh, I can't remember, Dr... Renee Russo's character, right? Yeah. She makes the perfect point. No one's going to remember who won this tournament five years from now. They'll remember but they're going to remember your 12. I don't, you know, I, I'm a diehard golf fan. I know that Daly won, you know, one of his PGAs by hitting a zero iron under the longest, but I couldn't remember the years. I, I remember John Daly for the John Daly moments, you know, when he's going to a playoff with Tiger Woods at the Shell Houston Open and they show Tiger on the range hitting balls, and they show John Daly drinking a Diet Coke and smoking a cigarette by his trailer before he has the first tee of the playoff hole. Tiger's in the fairway, Daly pulls one in the in the water, and that was the playoff. But that's what I remember from Daly is he didn't give a crap. He was going to get that heater in, and he needed one more Diet Coke before he went to the first playoff tee. I remember Daly for the demons, not for the wins. You know, I, I think with, with golf, we remember – the big moments, period. If it was just a boring major or boring whatever, we don't remember that. But we remember the the big collapses. We remember the crazy Benzo. come from behind. Yeah, I was just thinking of that one, you know, at, at, at the Road Hole in, in, in St. Andrews. We remember that. Who won that tournament that year? Can you remember? Not off the top of my head, but at 91 PGA, that was, uh, that was daily. I remember. But the funny thing is, have you ever played Tour 18? I have. So you remember you, know, you remember the par five that kind of just wraps around. It's almost like a it's not even a, it's not a complete circle, but it's like it's the big hill hole, right? Yeah. So daily, when he was playing that in real life, he actually just turns ninety degrees, faces the damn green, and goes for it because it was like maybe a three twenty three thirty carry. Same thing Bryson did 30 years later. People were freaking out about it, but Daly did it when the driver was the size of a Coke can. I remember, you know, yeah, you remember the, the great shots. Like, I remember Larry Mize chipping in the Masters to beat, you know, Greg Norman. I remember Robert Gomez holding it out from the fairway to beat him in a, you know, regular tournament to beat Greg Norman. So, yeah, that's a guy who's, you know, poor guy's been beat so many different, you know, amazing ways. But, and, and all of these guys, you know, they get, you know, golf does a good job of bringing these, you know, personalities in and allowing them, you know, to flourish even after they're done, 
you know, as competitive golfers. You know, Nick Faldo, I mean, he, he can beat either one of us like a drum on a golf course, but he's not winning anything. Uh, I mean, I guess he could probably win a lot of money on the senior tour. You know, Bernard, I think he could, if he wanted to, he could clean up out there. Right. But Bernard Longer didn't want to. Bernard Longer still winning, you know, to events out there. But did you see the? Speaking of Longer, did you see the controversy around old Bernhard? I have not. So I don't know. Three or four years ago, the old belly putter. You know, you cannot anchor the putter. That is the rule. You can have the long grip, you can have the broomstick, but it cannot be anchored. And there's a lot of pictures of Bernhard over the weekend winning this Champions Tour event where his top hand is right up against anchored on his chest. Uh, and as and this is the, for those of you who don't watch golf, golf is the only sport in the world where you at home can call the tour and say, hey, this person did this and didn't take the stroke, and it will be assessed to them. They will look at the video footage and be like, hey, this caller was right, and they'll go talk to him. So the fact that he's doing this and getting called out by viewers actually means something. It's not like when... You know, the Astros challenge a play, the umpires clearly blow. Like, no, you can call in and say, hey, this guy's cheating on number 16, and he will be assessed those penalties. Hey, I use the belly putter. Uh, it really comes in handy when you're playing inside the leather. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's yeah. I've got a case of, uh, with, when I use a conventional putter, I've got a case of the yips, and it's uh, a pretty you know serious thing, but... Yeah, Bernard, and, and he, he struggled with putting all the way going back to the 80s. It was, you know, it was something he battled off and on, and, you know, and we can make fun of people for the yips. I don't do that anymore. Um, it's just crazy. Like, I remember, um, who was the guy? Like, David Duvall and Ian Baker Finch are two guys that, you know, kind of just... Like, ben Hogan developed it. I mean, literally the greatest swinger of the club of all time after a car accident, had a terrible case of the yips. Well, Dan Jenkins, uh, uh, who I was mentioning before, he played with them all the time at Colonial, and said he played the greatest round he'd ever seen. He uh, he scored, he had a 68, and did not make a putt longer than a tap-in. Um, which is just crazy. So, you know, but I think Ian Baker Finch, I remember him uh, at the British Open, you're talking about bad moments, where, you know, he, uh, the last hole, is like literally, you know, the first hole is right next to it, right? So we're talking St. Andrews, right? St. Andrews, and so you hit the ball anywhere, it's going to be in the fairway, right? That's one tiny little bit of water, but it's hard to hit. I mean, it's so short; it's e it should be easy to carry. Not Ian Baker Finch. He went left of the fair of the first fairway. I mean, he. Um, I mean, I've only seen one person do that in my life. It was my uncle. We were playing out, and he, he hit one. I just say it was a pull down the left field line, you know. <laughs> I mean, he's a screamer. And he was out of bounds by like a good 100 yards. And, and they didn't know. They don't know the rules of golf. They don't know there's out of bounds. So he just went out into somebody's yard that was over a, a, a road, and he's taking a five iron just to hit it back into the golf course. And that was the kind of play that Ian Baker Finch made. And, and – that's where, you know, I mentioned this in a very early, uh, one of our earliest episodes, but one of the best things about golf is that every once in a while you see guys hit shots that you're like, yeah, that looks like something I could do. That's something looks like something I have done. Okay. Like when TC Chen double chipped, it's like, yeah, you know, I could, you know, I could see how that could happen. Um, I mean, I've had one, you know, I was mentioning where I was putting on that course, you know, where the ball came back to me. I had another one where I'm on the green. 
I actually putted it into a bunker. And he was like, how do you, you know, it's not even a four putt at that point. I mean, I don't even know what you call that, but it, it was, it was horrible. But you see these guys do it and you see these guys struggle, you know, particularly on courses like Augusta National on the greens where you see these ridiculous putts and you're like, thank God they struggle. Yeah, it, it golf's a humbling game. It really is. And it's, it's always nice to see the world's best be humble just that little bit. I, I don't know much about your junior career. I, I personally, like my highest finish in an HJ event, I, I had a T1 and lost in a playoff. But anytime I, I personally struggled with like big time anxiety, if I was near a lead, anytime. And the one that sticks out in my head, I was actually leading a JV tournament um, at Deerwood Country Club. And for those of you who don't know, Deerwood Country Club is where they shot Tin Cup. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And at Deerwood Country Club, the famous Tin Cup hole is actually a par three. It's not a par five. I was playing this course on a, it was a nasty Houston rainy day in like February. It's cold. It's rainy. I'm like six or seven over in a JV tournament through like 14 holes. Um, and my coach comes up to me and he goes, hey, you might be winning this thing today. I made a, I made like, I went like triple, triple, double the double to finish and shot 86 and uh you know that's when you realize those humbling moments of like it's not only that these guys are good it's that they can be good with everything on the line because at the end of the day if i win that jv tournament it makes no difference in my in my life there's no paycheck coming there's no promotion to varsity there's no beautiful women waiting to celebrate with me as i walk off the green it is a jv golf tournament where i'm carrying my own bag and we're hopping on the yellow bus to get back home afterwards, right? Nothing in my life is changing in that scenario. And I still choked so hard. So the fact that these guys are out there on the 18th tee of Augusta with a one-stroke lead and the green jacket and a lifetime exemption and the ability to play this course whenever you want all on the line, and they still pipe it down the heart of the fairway, I mean, it's it's admirable. And it's, it's But again, at the other side of it, it's great to see where they have those – mental breakdowns the way that you and I have them. Uh, real quick, just to transition from golf, I we had talked so much about the regionality of sports coverages. And, you know, when it comes to sports broadcasting, especially in baseball, the regional TV channel is everything. And you already mentioned you have the inability to watch your own home team based on the cable provider that you don't have. And based on MLB's ridiculous rules, you can't even just pay for the streaming rights to that one team because of blackout rules. Well, now it's going to get worse, Scott, because there is a we talked about monopolies in, in broadcasting and media. Well, there's a monopoly on these small market teams. If you go and look through every Major League Baseball team's carrier, a majority of them are Bally or Fox Sports, Southwest, Coast, you know, whatever it is, right? You've got, those are the main two. The Astros, luckily enough, you know, tried to start their own thing with, with Comcast Sportsnet, and then it became AT&T Sports. It's, if, for those of you who had Comcast Sports, it was a great channel. The only problem was it was named Comcast Sports, and they forced everybody else to carry it. Well, now they have their own channel. It, it's fine. We, we're not in this scenario. But for those of you whose teams are, are your local coverage is owned by Bally, they're billions of dollars in debt, and Major League Baseball is about to take over those local broadcasts. That worries me. You know, anytime 
Major League Baseball right now gets their hands involved in things, I, it doesn't go well. The more that they, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping that those local fans at least have access to their broadcast this year, but we're going to see some interesting changes in the way that, you know, individual cities broadcast their games, I feel like. And it, it's really interesting to me that more teams didn't try and do something like the Astros did where they have ownership of their broadcast. The, the whole point of the Comcast Sportsnet was the Rockets and Astros owned that cha- owned a part of that channel, and they made money off of their broadcast versus, you know, these Bally networks. They're paying, or they're supposed to be paying, the team X amount of dollars to be able to broadcast and sell those ads. Well, when you're not getting that money, you know, that's less free agency dollars that you can spend. And I don't know if you've noticed, but a majority of the teams using the, the Bally Sports Networks, they're some of the smaller market teams. So when they're not getting that money that they're banking on for their TV deals, that's really going to hurt those franchises in the long run. Well, and I think we're skirting onto your sports scumbag of the week here. Um, so we can I'll, we can circle back to that. We'll just I'll just say this. Um, Manfred came on. He, he came up with you know this word salad of oh well, yeah we're gonna look at this and then let do something and I don't know we're gonna figure something. It's like we want to watch our teams on TV. And I've had a number of people who sit there and say, you know, Scott, if you go to this website and you click on this button and you kind of do this and kind of do that, you can watch the Astros. It's like, I don't want to work around. And that's beside the point, too, because I've done those workarounds. But at the end of the day, Scott, you personally, you are willing to give the MLB $150 for the season to watch the Astros. You're You're willing to spend that money. They're not willing to take your money. Oh, they'll take it. They just won't give me the ass. But, but yeah, but not for what you want. They won't. They won't sell you the product that you want to buy. Essentially. Well, and and, and for you, anybody, dude, baseball long has talked about the disparities between uh, between teams and revenues. Television is where the revenue is at, and and this is in the huge difference. And I remember reading this somewhere. And if I get this wrong, I'll come back next week and make make a correction. But I I was reading somewhere where. The Dodgers make more money off of parking than the Pirates get from their television network. So, you know, you imagine that. You know, and this is where the Yankees have the Yes Network. Um, You know, obviously Los Angeles is just a huge media market. But even there, half of L.A. was blacked out of Dodgers games for like 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you're looking at, you know, obviously Boston – you know, Boston itself is not a big town, but, you know, it's surrounding areas. You know, you're talking, you know, a huge. Red- All of New England is pretty much rooting for the Red Sox, right? right? I mean, it, or the Yankees, but yeah, one of those two. WGN with, uh, with Chicago for years, TBS with the Braves for years. Um, you know, and actually the Braves, you know, after, you know, Turner, you know, sold the team, you know, they've kind of taken a step back in terms of revenue. And they're on that valley. They're on right. the valley system too. Right. And so I think that's just the biggest issue. And that's where the NFL has – the NFL is like the premier economic model because, you know, you mentioned that the games are nationally televised. All the games are nationally televised just as a general rule. So I can take that pie. I can divide it 32 ways. Easy. Boom, boom, boom. 
So that's where Green Bay, which you know has maybe what, about 13 people living there, that's you know where they can survive as an NFL team. There's no way in hell a Green Bay could even make it as an probably a Double A team, much less you know much less a Major League Baseball team. Not if they're competing with the Brewers. I mean, if that was if you took out Milwaukee and you put the team in Green Bay with the same TV rights, you know what's the difference between you know, all the teams that go to the suburbs and, right. and call themselves the main right. team. Right. And so that's where, you know, and so baseball has made a lot of uh, noise lately about expanding to 32 teams because 32, you know, it makes sense in a lot of different ways. I mean, you could do multiples of four, you know, with a division. So you could have like four divisions of four in a league, you know, where it makes maybe makes more sense there, or you can maybe go to eight, you know, but the thing is, is where baseball is going to run into trouble is where do you expand to? Because, I mean, Nashville's making a big push right now. Um, Las Vegas. But see, Las Vegas, do they get the Oakland A's? You know, and if you're, you know, if they get the Oakland A's, are you going to put another team back in Oakland? I sure wouldn't. Um, so, you know, you've got Portland, you've got maybe Charlotte, you know, that, that area. San Antonio, Austin, you know, maybe. But, you know, that's the hard thing is that the media market size is just so very important in baseball. And it's more important in baseball than it is in any of the other major sports. And that's where that disparity comes in. You know, and baseball's famous. They don't want to open their books. So, you know, teams, I remember Drake McClain crying about how, well, you know, in the Astrodome, I need 2.2 million fans to break even. Then he gets 2.2 million. Well, I need actually about 2.4 million. I mean, he was he was you know speaking out of his butt. He he, I mean, he he was making a profit, but in all seriousness, though, and 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 I remember I was I'm listening to uh, every once in a while the MLB Network on XM. They're talking about the Orioles with a 67 million dollar payroll playing in the, in the American League East with Boston, New York, Toronto, all huge spenders. And then Tampa Bay, which is probably the best-run organization for a team that doesn't have money. You know, how you know if you're Baltimore, yeah, you've got some young talent right now, but how do you compete? I mean, if you're not willing to spend. Well, it goes back into that, that TV market, right? When you look at when you bring a new team in, which is what exactly what happened to the Orioles, is originally if you're living in Washington, D.C., you were most likely an Orioles fan because that was the, the closest team to you. So that TV contract covered Baltimore, covered Washington, covered the surrounding areas in Maryland. Now you have the Nationals. So if you live in D.C., if you live in Maryland, if you live you know, somewhere in that area and some parts of Pennsylvania, who are you rooting for? And, and you're taking away some of that pie. So, like, when you look at the, you know, the, the blackout maps or whatever, you know, the coverage maps or whatever you have, look at Texas, right? Because you mentioned Austin and San Antonio. Both of those are in the Astros broadcast zone. So if you didn't want to have cable and you wanted to live in, in San Antonio, Texas, and just pay for uh, the MLB app and stream the season, you can't get the Astros there. Same in Dallas, same in Houston, same in certain parts of Louisiana, all of which consider, you know, their TV network, you can't go there. If you brought in a team and put them in San Antonio and you take that revenue away from the Astros, right, your TV market doesn't cover this. 
where are you making up the extra money? And to me, a team like Baltimore um, is in a much tighter spot than a team like Houston just because of the success that the Astros have had in, in recent years. Would You could sustain a little bit of that because I think you would have enough people that still want to watch. If you're Baltimore, who's who's going out of the way to watch Baltimore Orioles games right now unless you live in Baltimore? Uh, and this is, a, I think, a perfect opportunity to segue into our sports comebacks for the week because I think we've kind of been dancing around yours. So let's go ahead and, and name that dance partner you know, that we've been talking about here. My, my sports comeback this week is, is Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball. Um, it's, it's for a litany of reasons. We can start off with, as we mentioned, the way that the MLB broadcast is put together is terrible. If, if I have the means to pay for, pay for the season to watch that team, I don't care how you split that pie up. Whatever money they would have got from cable, give it to them and let me watch my team. It's ridiculous that in 2023 you can buy this package and still be blacked out. Blackout rules made sense when it was with football and you had to sell a certain amount of tickets per game or else it wasn't fair to the people who were going to the game. For, you know, Whatever reasoning you want to come up with. But when there's 162 games in a season, no one's gonna go, you're not going to build a fan base blacking out games. At most, a, a family with four, with two kids, a family of four is going to go to, what, five or ten games a year, and it's really expensive to do so. But if you wanted to be fans of that game, fans of the team, and go to those five to ten games a year, you've got to make it so they can fall in love with the game at night. So that's my issue number one with Major League Baseball. Issue number two, and this is the biggest one I have right now, is I've known for three years now that the Astros were scapegoats of the sign-stealing scandal. I was very well aware that every team that was worth a damn in baseball was stealing signs. And I, I was where, uh, you know, I got it. You, you got to protect the shield. But they haven't done that. You know, there's still been so much information coming out. We know that other teams are doing exactly what the Astros are doing. We know the Dodgers did it. We know the Red Sox did it. We know the Yankees did it. We know the Brewers did it. Any team that was making the playoffs during that time period did it. But you took all of the brunt of everything out on the Astros. And you know what? That's fine. If you want to do it to the team, that's fine. But what Rob Manfred did is he created an environment where it was dangerous to be an Astros fan in a city that's not Houston. I had people try and fight me in a bar on my brother's bachelor party in San Diego simply because I had an Astros hat on. I can't walk into a Rangers game without being called a cheater. I've been told I'm not qualified to raise my daughter because I am a cheater. All of these things because my team was made the scapegoat of something that every single quality team in the league was doing. And if I had any kind of legal background, I would be putting together a class action lawsuit of Astros fans against Rob Manfred personally. And I would want all the discovery of what every team was doing. And I'd like to show how you have made it impossible for me to go to another city and enjoy a baseball game without a risk of my life or my safety. I can't take my daughter to go watch the Astros Rangers game with me because I'm not going to not wear my Astros stuff, but she's going to be subjected to comment after comment and inappropriate things said after inappropriate things said simply because Ron Manfred couldn't handle the problem the way that he should have. And if you were going to make the Astros the scapegoat, then you should have shut it down and there should have been nothing else coming out. But he didn't do that and he didn't handle it right from day one. He was hoping to just everybody would look away and move on, 
but he didn't because he didn't do a thorough investigation and he just shut it down quickly and said the Astros were the only ones doing it. Well, at the end of the day, there are investigative reporters out there that are going to do a better job. They got to the bottom of it, and now Rob Manfred's sitting there looking like the idiot that we always knew he was. And I hope to God some Houston-based lawyer sues the living hell out of him for what he did to the fans of the city of Houston. What really drives me nuts about this, and this is, this is the attitude that baseball has. Number one, why did this happen? This happened because baseball wanted to introduce an element of instant replay. So we put a monitor in the dugout so that the manager or pinch coach... It didn't guard that monitor at all. No guarding whatsoever. Well, but not only that, but, but not only that, you could, you could have rigged it any way you wanted to. You could have put it on 30-second delay. And, you know, that would, have, that would have fixed the problem. Or you could do what teams finally started doing last year uh, they've already done this in college, but they, a few pitchers experimented with having the earpiece. Pitching coach goes to the microphone, fastball. You don't have hand signals anymore. And the thing is, is that, you know, it's not like this is, you know, mythical technology. I mean, football's been doing this for decades, you know, where they can speak into the, the quarterback's helmet or speak into the middle linebacker's helmet. This is the defensive call. So now we don't have to do the hand signals, you know, from the sideline. But baseball, instead of doing that, you know, we want to, oh, don't do this. And in somebody, uh, you know, it was on one of the afternoon sports shows here this week, and they said it, you know, they said it perfectly. It had to be the Astros. Because if it was the Astros, then it's just one rogue team getting over on everybody else. If we come out and say it's 10 teams, then we look like the dopes. Major League what's frustrating, is- too, what's frustrating, Scott, is, I don't know if you remember, but yeah, I'm sure you do, the Astros were not viewed positively in the national media before that, right? We had the Osuna trade, which well, everybody wondered what the hell they were doing. Tobman. Then you had Brian Taubman come out. So we were already, already toxic, right? And that's why it was the perfect... We were the perfect scapegoats because if you were not from Houston, for the most part, you didn't like the Astros. That's what it was because they put a spotlight and a target on their own backs by being cocky SOBs. You know, I love Alex Bregman, but most people who are not Astros fans think that guy's a jerk. But he's not. He's just cocky and he's good and he's our guy. But they, as an organization, set themselves up to be scapegoated. And part of it's the... The attitude, the aura that they had, the guys that they had in there like Taubman. But part of it is, too, I still think the worst thing they did was use the trash can as the relay. Like, that's what gets made fun. Like, everybody who's Apple Watch, sleek technology, no issues. But the fact that we're banging on a trash can just made it that much more laughable. I think I think there are two things that I think um, was going on there. Number one, I think Manfred and Major League Baseball really were gunning for Jeff Luno. I think that was their target. Um, and it could be that he was just, you know, better than everybody. But he also had a lot of arrogance to him. And I think if he had handled things differently um, after the fact, he might have found his way back into the game. Uh, but he's not going to now, not, you know, after the way he played it. 
but you know, the other thing is, I think the other players, uh, particularly the players, the one who they hate is Mike Fires. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Mike, I don't know if Mike Fires can come back into the country, uh, much less you know play major league baseball anymore. And you notice, I mean, it was just comical. He was with the A's for two whole years and never pitched against the Astros. I mean, it was just, you know. They hit him. They hit him like, you know, someone in Nazi Germany, basically. But they, yeah, they, they did not want him pitching against the Astros. And I, and I think they're mad at the Astros. So they're not mad at the Astros for cheating. They're mad at how stupid they were about it, you know, with the trash cans. And they're mad that Mike Fires, you know, basically made it impossible uh, for Manfred to do nothing. Because I think that's, at the end of the day, that's what Manfred wanted. Manfred wanted to do nothing. But, right. He wanted to look the other way if possible. But he couldn't. And that was, you know, that was because of Mike Fires. I, I think my bigger issues with baseball is that we're, um, we're forever tinkering. Where you know we're we're doing rules changes, some of them I think are positive. I think the larger base is a positive. I, I like and the it, larger base. That's it's a safety thing to me, right? Like why why not do that one? The uh, pitch clock, hit or miss. I, uh, I think the the whole limiting to two you know pickoffs, you know that I think is yeah, that's dumb. stupid. I think you know the baiting the shift. It's like learn to hit the ball the other way. And I think what for, with forever happens in baseball, and this is if you study the history of the game, you'll see this. It there's ebbs and flows. Um, the 1960s through probably the mid 80s, it was a speed game. Um, and then towards the later part of the 80s, the 90s, we start going into a power game. So whenever we're scouting players, that's what we're looking for. You know, we're looking for pitchers who can combat that. You know, and uh, you know the Astros are famous for this. I mean, they they look for spin rate. You know, so we look for pitchers that have the spin rate. So now, you know, that's what we do. The thing is, is that we've never needed the game to fix it. The game fixes itself over time. Like if I see that you know teams are attacking me a certain way, you know, it'll take me a while, but I'm going to scout my way out of that. Like if if I see that teams are shifting to one side, you know, or the other, I'm going to start, you know, scouting guys that can hit the ball to all fields. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to find me some more Michael Brantley's. And eventually you'll get to the point where that doesn't help you. And then the shift stops. Uh, And and so I think what they're trying to do now is they're trying to manufacture more action when the game would naturally evolve into that. And, And that's what's, and I think, you know, baseball doesn't really, Manfred doesn't understand. So, okay, we, have, we get larger backs. We get no shifts. We've got no pickoffs. So, and we've also eliminated the sticky tack. So what have you done? You've made it easier for teams to hit. When teams hit, they score more runs. When we score more runs, it takes longer. We use more relief pitchers. The games are going to last longer. But oh, gosh, we have to make the game shorter, so now we're going to use a pitching clock. So now we're, it's like you're doing these things that don't compute together because you're just tinkering here and there. You don't, you don't have a cohesive plan of what you really want to be. So, well, we need more action. Oh, we need to do this. 
Oh, people are complaining about it being over three hours. Oh, so let's do this. And when it all, when you add it all up, and I'm going to bet you that the difference in game time is not more than five or ten minutes a game. No, it's not. And I think the number one prerequisite, if you are going to be the commissioner of a sport, should be you love that sport. I don't think Rob Manfred loves baseball. I think he likes it. I think it's been his whole career. But, like, I don't think Rob Manfred is is someone who's in love with the game the way you and I are, right? Like, you you posed a question to me, um, you know, at our, our time right before we started, right? And you asked me, if I wasn't a fan of the Astros, who would I root for? And there are seven, eight teams out there that I think it would be fun to be a fan of. For me, I, I think I would go with the Mariners because they're a, a fun, young organization with some young stars coming up that you could see getting better over the future. But I don't think you could ask Rob Manfred, like, besides your favorite team, who would you root for, that he would have an answer to that. I don't think that he loves the game. I think he's fine with the I think he's, again, he's fine with it. He likes it. He's okay with it. Maybe he likes his team. But I just think he's one of those guys that doesn't appreciate the game doesn't love the game and until you can find a way to make sure that people like that aren't the commissioner of the sport he's going to stay at the top of that scumbag list right and, and the whole thing is, is like we talked about with the blackout rules well you you want as many eyeballs on your sport as you possibly can and you know the fact is that we pull the plug on cable you know roughly around 2010 ish i guess you know and at that time, we were like one of 5% of the country. Now it's 25%, maybe upwards of 30 If not more. Yeah, but they're third. And I would say in the next... If you, don't count, if you count like Hulu and Fubo and all those YouTube TV as being part of cord cutters, yeah. I'd say 60 to 70% of people have quote-unquote cut the cord. Yeah, I don't know if traditional cable will be even be a thing in 10 years. You know, much less, you know, I'm sure you'll still have satellite. Like, I think DirecTV is trying to compete on that level with, like, its own streaming service. And, you know, okay, that's great. But you have to you have to find ways for, you know, fans to watch the game. You have to find ways for them to connect with players. We talked about this before. We talked about the whole thing of having, like, a baseball version of an end zone channel where it's like, oh, man, look, it's three to two. Bases load in the bottom of the ninth. Let's switch to that game. You know, it, it, to me, it's every other sport, Scott, has found a way to almost use technology to its advantage, find a way to make it better. Uh, you know, with soccer, you have the chip inside the ball that can tell you if it actually went in the goal or not. So, you know, when you go to tennis, you've got the, the ability to challenge and see exactly where the ball landed. Football has done a phenomenal job for the most part of using technology to make the game better. Baseball doesn't know how to do that. There are two or three key changes that you could have made and robo umpires should have been done years ago. You could easily put something inside the ball that lets you know if it lands fair or foul and the challenge process could be done in two seconds. There, same thing for a home run. You could easily uh, use technology to let you know where that ball landed. And instead, we go to a replay center in New York for some guy who to just randomly pick up the game and see the play and see what happened. Bad use of technology. The NFL 
has a deal with Amazon Prime that every Thursday night game is on Amazon, so that way as many people as possible, you can get eyeballs to see it. Good use of technology. They have a partnership with Fubo that you can get Red Zone streaming to your house. No blackouts. Good use of technology. Major League Baseball has no idea how to properly use the technology and the Internet to grow the game, and they keep coming with bad rule changes that give you one little one little tidbit of a, a, something that's good and then cover it with crap. And it's just, again, they don't know how to use technology. What I would love to see baseball do, and, and I'd love to see other sports do this, and this is something that they started doing. And, and I didn't see it this year on Amazon, but I saw it last year on Thursday Night Football. Okay, we don't like Joe Buck. You can listen to Hannah Storm and Andrea Kramer just by flicking a button. You know, click, click. We love listening to them. It's uh, not hard. And, and our, our independent baseball league, you would click on the game, like on American Association TV, you would click on the game you want to watch, and you can choose Airhawks broadcast. You could choose Cleburne Railroaders broadcast. Same video, but you could choose who you want to hear. And that's an independent baseball league that has, you know, a $5,000 a month max for players of salary. We're not paying people that much, and we still found a way to have a website that for a few bucks a year, you can listen to the game, you can see it anywhere you want, no blackouts. They're trying to grow their product. And that's you, an independent league. You can do that on MLB TV. Um, it'll allow you to choose if you can if you can get it right. If you for the other twenty eight teams that you know we can't get, but I'm going to go to my my my, uh, my scumbag of the week, the sports scumbag. Uh, let me set the table here. Uh, Tillman Fertitta was down at Mardi Gras uh, this last weekend. Uh, and he, en- let's just say he enjoyed himself a little. He, 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 uh, he, he was not feeling any pain and he got interviewed by Frank Billingsley and they just had a quick little thing about the rockets. And in fact, he could have sidestepped it. He could have just said, I'm not talking about business today. We're just, you know, go rockets. But he said, pray for Victor. Now, what does he mean? You know, what does he mean by that? We talked about you know this when we had our Rockets discussion a couple of episodes ago. Um, the number one prospect in the in the draft, uh, Victor. I'm not even gonna try and butcher his last name. Wambaya is how you uh, say it. Uh, seven foot four, skilled big man. You know, I, I heard him described as uh, as a Kevin Durant who's been you know. Bitten by that radioactive spider that's turned, you know, turned Peter Parker into Spider Man. Um, now, let me lay out some just some ideas of where you go on this, right? Okay. If the Rockets end up with the worst record in the NBA, which they have the last two years, they have a 14% chance of getting the number one overall pick. If you're the next worst team, or the third worst team, you have a 14% chance to get the number one overall pick. If you're maybe fourth or fifth down the line, we're talking 10, 11%. Damn. And so the whole thing is that, you know, and I, I, I get it on a certain level, you know, because, you know, you know, 
we could sit there, we could claim, you know, we're being hypocrites because, you know, the best thing for the Texans to do in the last game of the season was lose that game, which they didn't do. But there's no there's no lottery in the NFL, too. Right. That's a big difference. Right. That's a 100% chance of getting the number one overall pick. And so my problem is, it's not really so much that we're losing. Okay. That's going to happen. Okay. The thing is, is that they are not doing anything to develop the players on this team. Not a damn thing. You know, Jalen Green, we, we both talked about it. He could be a scoring champ someday. Maybe he will be. But, and, and, and Kenny Smith made some comments about. Um, I don't watch the Rockets. I don't pay attention to the Rockets. Well, what what he he, what he, well, the thing that he said that I think is absolutely true. He says that even bad teams have to have somebody score. You can score 18 points a game on, a, on the worst team in the league. You know, and do you remember? Do you remember when the Rockets traded for Kevin Martin? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember those days. You know, I'm, so there's there's a lot of people in Rockets land that were thrilled to get Kevin Martin, twenty twenty five point score, yada yada yada. He did that on bad teams, and you're right. Someone's gotta you you it's someone's gonna get twenty five. You're gonna score ninety to hundred points. No one plays defense in the NBA, and when you're a terrible team, they really don't clamp down on defense. So in that scenario, someone's going to get 25, 30 points a night. And what makes it so much more frustrating, Scott, is let's look at Jabari Smith. Number three overall pick. A lot of people thought he was going to go number one overall. Steven Silas, the coach of the Rockets, has flat out come out and said, I don't run plays for him. I don't run plays for him. He's the number three overall pick in the draft. He's a starter. He's someone that you're trying to build the future of your team with. And you're doing nothing to develop him. You don't run plays for him. Not even four or five plays a night just to get him some touches. Like it's, you're right. It's, it's, it, there's such a poorly run organization. And this is exactly what I was worried about when Tillman Fertitta bought the Rockets is number one, he's cheap, very well known for being cheap. And number two, if you've ever been to any Tillman Fertitta owned restaurant, it's crap. It's expensive crap. He doesn't do things the right way. He doesn't care about res- the quality of results. He cares about him personally making money. One of the and at the end of the day, it, that's what we're seeing with the Rockets, right? He's putting crap product out. One of the one of the first anniversaries my wife and I had, we decided, you know, we were going to go, we were going to go to Vic and Anthony's, and we were going to watch the Astros, and so we we showed up. We made a reservation, but we, you know, we showed up in more or less fan gear, which Vic and Anthony's is like. Do they even let you in? They let us in. I think the uh, the silverware was all a cart, but you know, he owns you know he owns the Kima Waterfront down here. Kima Waterfront is a very nice place, um, but we've only gone maybe one or two times in the last five years because you. Uh, well, last time we actually didn't pay to park last time. Uh, but you know, the, every time before, if you parked even in the you know in the outdoor parking lot, not the parking garage, they made you pay to park. And it's like you know, it would be easy if you, all you would have to do in his case is sit there and say, you know what, you eat at one of my restaurants, I'll validate your parking. That'd be easy. Yeah, he's got the pleasure pier in Galveston. 
Not only do you have to pay to park, you got to pay to go on the pier, and then you've got to pay to ride any ride on the pier once you've paid to be on the pier. That that the, I mean, this is a guy who Tillman Fertitta comes from the mafia. I mean, his his family ran things in Galveston. They were a very big part of getting alcohol into the uh, southern states through the Galveston port during Prohibition. They used to run things out of the Balinese Club right there on the seawall before the hurricane took that out. He's a mafia guy. He is someone who has done nothing, little to nothing, for the community of Houston in the time that he's been very, very wealthy. You look at, uh, my dad ran one local restaurant, and I guarantee you that one restaurant did more for the community than all of Tillman Fertitta's Landry's Inc. properties. He doesn't care about giving back. He bought the Rockets as a toy for himself because he likes sports, and he's killing them. He is killing the Houston Rockets. Yeah, and your dad's restaurant was a whole lot better dining experience than, you know, than going to... Now, I mean, you can get a good meal. I mean, obviously, if, like, if you're going to the, the original Landry's, you know, they, they make... It's good seafood. But you're going to uh, pay 60 bucks for some two people to have some shrimp when yeah, it's, it's good, not great. It's and, and But I think what gets me is that it's so... The idea of having less talent i understand the idea of saying we're gonna let you know we're gonna grow this thing from the ground up i get i definitely get that i mean that's what we've been begging the texans to do but the thing is with you know when that comes is that when you sit there and say we're gonna play young guys trading an eric gordon to me yeah eric gordon doesn't you know he, he he didn't really have any business on a team like this. And, you know, basically, and, and to me, Raphael Stone has done some good things. I mean, I think Sengun is, you know, a whole lot better player than what he should have gotten at that point in the draft. Um, I think, you know, Jabari Smith could be a good player someday. He isn't now. Uh, Jalen Green could be a good player. Um, K.J. Martin, I think, is, you know, does some things. Deshaun Tate does some things. Uh the deal that he made to get Kevin Porter Jr. was an absolute steal. I mean, for what, what he had to give up to get him. But the thing is, is that they have to get better. Those players have to get better. And, you know, and somebody, you know, one of the radio shows today was like, you know, do you have your number one or number two superstar? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. But you can still develop three through the end of the roster. And leave your team there. So let's say you win the lottery. Great. You get, you know, Victor. Okay. That happened. In, but I want to tell this story, you know, because I think everybody, you know, knows this story well. I think we were the last team, we were the best team in the lottery. The year that we, or maybe the second best team in the lottery, the year that we won the number one pick to get Yao Ming. Yeah, we, we. Very low odds. Very so, low odds. So a lot of people thought it was rigged at that point because Houston had such a huge uh, Chinese base of citizens living in the country, and all of a sudden you've got a Chinese player coming to a team had low, low odds of getting that pick. And that was before the odds changed, right? It, it used to be progressively lower as you went on. You mentioned now it's, it's kind of bracketed. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that with, you know, so that's a team that's winning 30, 35 games, right? That's a team that could, you know, and, and 
I mean, you had Luis Scola and you had guys like that. It's like, yeah, you know, there was, they were okay. But you get Yao Ming and Yao Ming when healthy was everything you thought Yao Ming could be. Now he had, he ended up having problem with his feet and he, you know, and his career was shortened. But, you know, when you had him and Tracy McGrady both healthy, that was a damn good basketball team. Problem was, is they just weren't healthy enough. But Victor could be everything that you want in a basketball player. He could be a 2010 guy immediately, off the bat. Maybe 25 and 12. Let's say he's 25 and 12. You stick that in the middle. Is this team the way it is right now with just adding Victor, a playoff team? No, you could drop LeBron James on this roster right now, and it's not a playoff team. And that's and that's what's frustrating, Scott. Is these are wasted opportunities. You know, we think back to the the hundred lost years of the Astros. They at least, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> they use that time to bring guys up from the minor leagues, give them run at the big league level, and see, okay, who can stick here. And then in 2015, when they had enough young talent that could stick. They went and signed some quality veterans to fill that roster out. At this point with the Rockets, I don't think they know who can stick. They haven't done enough with this time of, you know, free time, right? This is free minutes. Everybody and anybody that you think could possibly be a future for your organization should be getting some run, should be being coached up at an NBA level, and you should be seeing if this is somebody, God forbid, right, there's a lot of smoke that Harden could come back. Let's say you get the number one pick, you get Wimbaya, you've got Jalen Green, you've got Kevin Porter Jr. If you get Harden back, did you coach these guys up enough to be a good surrounding cast for him next season? No, you haven't. You wasted the opportunity with two years' worth of minutes on Jalen Green. He could have been coached into being a quality NBA player if you cared about that. And the problem, that is the ultimately the problem with taking. So I, when I was my last years, uh, when I was coaching varsity volleyball, I went down, I coached at Galveston Ball, coaching volleyball. Galveston Ball, I was coaching there. My daughter had already been born, so this would have been about 2007. My sister graduated from Lake before I did. She's older. She played volleyball from the mid-'80s. On and then she coached at Lake, so you know I'm paying attention, you know, to the district. Galveston Ball did not win a district match from at least the mid '80s till the time I got there. I mean, that's over 20 years. The problem that you have with tanking is that, and and, and you, we can go with the hypnotism or whatever. You know, losing becomes a habit. It does. Because, you know, the kids were all complaining, you know, when, when somebody in the paper called them a bottom feeder program. It's like, guys, what place did y'all come in last year? Last. What place did y'all come in the year before? Last. What do you think you are? And the point is, is that they weren't willing. They just wanted it just to happen. They didn't, weren't willing to work for it at all. Because, you know, and I think part of them knew they were never going to win anyway. That's what happens when you tank, is that losing becomes a habit. Uh, We watch it. You know, we watch Jalen Green. You watch Jabari Smith. Jabari Smith is a coach's son. 
he knows how to play the game. And you know, and he, you hear him every once in a while. Some of that frustration kind of oozes out. That you know, he's looking around. He's going like, you know, what the hell? You know, Sangoon, a very skilled player, he doesn't play a lick of defense at all. And defense, you know, and, and I'm not a basketball coach, so you know, sue me here. But defense is about effort. It's all effort. It's eighty. It's eighty percent effort. And twenty percent preparing yourself to know what are these guys' tendencies, right? It's it's putting the time in ahead of time, and then putting the effort in on the court to be effective at both ends. And I think that what you said about tanking is absolutely right. When you look at Daryl Morey's time with the Rockets, he was able to build a legitimate championship contender without ever going below five hundred. You know, he what Daryl Morey did is. Unbelievable when you think about the the lack of legitimate talent that guy had after T Mac and Yao left this team to be able to turn you know Kyle Lowry and Goran Dragic and Kevin Martin into you know Parsons, Lynn, and Harden in their first year here. That was a great job. But then you also think about you know with tanking the culture that you mentioned. I think that's the biggest difference in basketball and baseball is, you know, look at the Astros, right? They, I think anybody and their mother would agree that they tanked. But the difference is, when they got those high draft picks, they got to develop them in the minor leagues and build a winning culture there. So those guys that got to the big leagues, they didn't know about tanking. They knew about winning championships in single A and double A and triple A. And all the guys that came up with them, they won championships in the minor leagues. So baseball's kind of in this one outlier. You can suck at the major league level, but your minor leagues can produce winners because they learned how to win there. That doesn't exist in, in, in the NBA. Your top prospect doesn't go to the G League to learn how to win. They're coming to the NBA right away. And, and if you don't have a good culture in your locker room, if you don't have a winning environment, they're not winning, winning is something you learn how to do. You don't just show up and win. You know, when you, we talk about golf, right? You can be a really good golfer, but you've got to learn how to close out a tournament. You've got to learn how to win a tournament. In basketball, you know, a 60-minute game, it really comes down to those last 10 minutes. It comes down to the fourth quarter crunch time, the teams that know how to win and can put a game away versus the team that makes stupid mistakes in the fourth quarter and they don't know how to win because they never learned that culture. And that's what Tillman has created with the Rockets. He, you know, he whiffed his first head coach hire, it, realistically, if you look at that. Um, you know, you can say whatever you want about the fact that Silas came in thinking he was going to be coaching Harden and Westbrook, but I haven't seen anything from this team that makes me think that Harden would enjoy playing in this system. I haven't seen anything that thinks that those two guys would have been better with Silas than than what we had. And you know, again, for Tita, he is he is destroying what you know before the Astros won their second World Series. You know, the Rockets were the most successful franchise in Houston sports history. And and Tillman is, is realistically, he's destroying that. Well, bringing this back to Tillman, and this is what, and, and I kind of liken this. And so you, when I look at any kind of, like a free agent signing, you look at a trade, you look at a draft pick, I look at it, you know, you look at a coaching hire. I look at it as, what did I think at the time, Right. Because it's easy to sit there a year or two later and go like, well, shoot, that didn't work. 
you know, I, I, I knew that one, you know. Did you really? I mean, and I think, and, and, and I mentioned, you know, meeting Bo Porter before when he became the Astros manager. And I, and I love that guy. And then he turned out just not to be the guy. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect comp, I think, for Silas. You know, wrong place, wrong time. I don't know if Silas is a good coach or not. I really don't because he's definitely not one of those coaches that can develop talent. He's not He's not a, a guy who can make your team better. He may be – he's that offensive coordinator, right? He is – he's the guy who could draw up X's and O's, but he's not the guy who you want running your program. What What gets me about Silas, though, what gets me about – uh, Tillman Fertitta is at a certain point, like when the, when the Texans hired David Culley, it's like the minute they hired him. I mean, my first question was, who in the fuck is David Culley? Um, but then the next, you know, when you hear him speak at the press conference, you're like, nope. Next. You know, when they hired Lovey Smith, you're like, nope. Next. But, you know, I could see hiring him and thinking, Young coach, innovative, maybe this could work. But at a I was all in on Silas. I, I'll be the first to tell you, I thought they nailed that hiring. But at the time, they had Carden and they had Westbrook on the roster. Well, but the point is, is that we knew this last year. We knew Silas wasn't the guy last year. I mean, so at the end of the day, what are we doing? It's like, you know, when, whenever you, you know, when you hired Lovey Smith, it's like when you have a guy that you know is not the guy and you hire him anyway, what are you doing? And, and, it's, and so it's this whole idea, well, we're just going to skate this year. No. You know, to me, after last year, after the second year, you know, really you knew Silas wasn't the guy after the first year. But give him a second year. Okay, fine. Give him a second year. But after last year, sit there and say, you know what? We thought we had the right guy. Turns out he's not the right guy for this situation. We're going to bring in somebody. We're going to bring in somebody who can teach these kids the right way to play winning basketball. That's what we're going to do. Could, could you imagine if you handed Jeff Van Gundy this roster? Could you imagine giving someone like uh, Thibodeau, Tom Thibodeau, a guy who just grinds it out? To, these guys have no idea what it what it means to be prepared to play an NBA game. They don't prepare. And you're right. Silas should have been fired after last year. And the Rockets looked at it, and I guarantee you Tillman didn't want to pay the buyout. And I guarantee you he said, we're going to suck again next year anyway. Why would I want to pay this guy plus the new coach that we're going to hire when we're still trying to get another lottery pick? Let's just suck one more year, and I won't have to pay two coaches. Guarantee you that's what it is, and it's Tillman being cheap. Well, and, and let's say you bring in, you know, you bring in a Tom Thibodeau, you bring in a Jeff Van Gundy, and, and what's going to happen, okay? These guys, they're going to sink or swim. Right now, they're hanging out in the kiddie pool. They, I mean, they're, they're not being forced to do anything. I guarantee, I, I would bet money that if it, you know, because I don't have to put the money up, but if Jeff Van Gundy or Tom Thibodeau was the coach, Kevin Porter would be out of town. He, he would be gone. Because Sangoon would play defense. He would Jabari Parker or Jabari Smith would play defense. You wouldn't have the Jalen Green would at least give effort. You wouldn't have this. You wouldn't have and, and guys would sink or swim and you'd know going into next year, who can I build on? Who is a part of this roster that's a legitimate NBA player? Because when you and I talk about the Texans, you know, like do we know if Nico 
Nico Collins is a legit receiver. We don't know. It's been three years. We don't know. Well, you have the whole freaking roster of the Rockets. I don't know if Jalen Green is a legit guy who could win a scoring title one day, or, or is he Kevin Martin, who's going to score 25 points a game on a losing team? I don't know, and it's been two years that we should have some answer on that question, and we don't. And, what, and that's what, you know, and, and the, the guy he kind of reminds me of, in a way, I don't know about style of play because I'm, I'm, I don't get, I don't dive into it that much. But Devin Booker is a guy, you know, he, you know, with Phoenix, they were a horrible team for years. Um, and he's sitting there dumping in 20, 25 points. All of a sudden, they get Chris Paul, they get some other good guys, and all of a sudden, they're a contender. And Devin Booker found a way to do it. Can Jalen Green do that? If Jalen Green is not the best player on the team, that's actually okay if he could play within that concept. You know, can he be a guy that can, you know, maybe dish out five or six assists a game? Could he be a guy that maybe gets more than two rebounds? I mean, I'm so tired of watching a line where he's like seven for 22, scoring 22 points, two rebounds, and three assists. This is ridiculous. I mean, with somebody with his handle, somebody with his talent, he should be dishing out five or six assists a game. Easy. He should be creating offense for his teammates. Sangoon's able to do it from inside. They don't seem to do that enough. But you're absolutely right. You would find out which one of those guys are building blocks, which one of those guys aren't. But now you're not doing that because nobody's holding anybody's feet to the fire. So we're going to come in next year. We're going to have $60 million plus in cap money to spend. You're going to go after free agents, maybe Harden. You're going to maybe have the number one overall pick. Probably you're not. Probably you're going to have maybe pick two, three, or four. Um, and you're going to get another good basketball player. But what does it all mean? you got to hire somebody who's actually going to start coaching this team is going to start saying, you know what, Kevin Porter Jr., if you, you know, if you want to leave the, you know, the gym and you want to go home, stay home. We'll get somebody else. You have a couple of other point guards on the roster who could run this, you know, run this thing. You know, don't put up with that. But instead, what do we do? We sit there and say, you know, James Harden's here, hey, you can go to the strip club every night. Hey guys, you know, if you don't want to play any defense, hey, just look at the All-Star game we just played. Hey, you can play just like that. No, that's not winning basketball. That's not going to get you anywhere. You're right. And that's that's why it's a great pick for scumbag of a sports segment for, for Tillman. Um, as, a, as a lifelong Rockets fan, it's – I don't remember bad times, right? Because like I said, you know, Daryl Morey rebuilt this team without losing seasons. And so um, – to go through this kind of experience as a Rockets fan is, is something that really hasn't been there in my lifetime. And it's, it's frustrating. Um, you know, only time will tell. I, for one, am, am a totally in favor. If, Jay, if James Harden wants to come back to town, come on, man. Like, what happened in a minute? But again, I don't know if when you look at NBA rosters and you go out and you look at where can I go in and have the most effect and, and win a title. How do top level free agents look at this Rockets roster and want to come here? Because they won't. At the end of the day, they won't. And that's because 
in my opinion, and I agree with you, that Tillman has done nothing to establish a culture that players would want to be a part of. At the end of the day, Mark Cuban has done an amazing job of building a culture with the Mavericks that guys want to play there. Guys want to be a part of the Dallas Mavericks, and realistically, Mark Cuban is one of the reasons why. I think when you look at the Rockets, you don't have that. I mean, Mark Cuban is the biggest fan of the team that there is, but he's also doing what's best for his players and putting him in a position to win. Tillman's a big fan, but he's not doing those things to help his team win. He's just a, a rich guy who bought a team and wants to sit in the front row and watch. Say what you want about Mark Cuban. I went to college before Mark Cuban was the owner of the Mavericks. Let me tell you, I mean, I'd, we'd call the Mavericks ticket office. Hey, do y'all have any tickets available? You know, because we, we'd go watch the Rockets when they'd come into town. Oh, yeah, you come on. I mean, because there was nothing. They, I mean, they may have drawn seven or 8,000 fans back in those days because, they, you know, that was, uh, gosh, that was, you know, before, you know, Jim Jackson and Jason Kidd and Jamal Mashburn. I mean, that was, you know, the doldrums. But the thing is, say what you will about Mark Cuban, he is always doing something to make that team better. It may not work, you know, and most, a lot of his moves haven't, but he's trying. Uh, and he's got, you know, management is trying, you know, he's bringing in coaching. He said some of the, you know, the best coaches in the NBA, they're trying. Uh, I don't know if this, you know, recent deal, you know, to get, uh, oh, uh, Kyrie Irvin, I don't know if that's going to work out for him, but it's a swing. So. Yeah. And, and who do the right, I mean, it all starts back with when the Rockets traded Harden, right? And you go and you get Victor Oladipo back, and it's just questionable decision after questionable decision. I mean, the way they handled John Wall was terrible. The way that they've they John Wall could have been a guy who could have mentored Jalen Green. You know, that's a guy who's been through it in the league, similar backgrounds, understands what this kid's been through. John Wall's a scorer. Like all these things could have been in place to help Jalen Green enter the NBA. And the Rockets have, they've just blown it. They really have. You know, I, I, it just makes me sad to keep talking about it at the end of the day. All right. So we might be running out of gas, so I'll try it this route. Tim, where can people find you? Well, I'm, as always, on Twitter, Tim underscore Costello 10. Um Again, my my Twitter profile. You've got to follow me in order to see it. But once you do, it's it's definitely worth it. Yes, I, I'm I'm definitely follow Tim on Twitter. Um, I'm at s barzilla on Twitter. Uh, I'm also you can find me. I write for Battle Red Blog uh, for the Texans, and I also write my own at theHallOfFameIndex.com. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure as it always is. Um, Really, I think this has been one of our more interesting sports conversations when we looked at, you know, everything we've covered today from our favorite sports broadcasters. I, I think anybody who's a, a fan of any major sport, right, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, golf for us, tennis, soccer, you've got that guy. You know, you've got that person that you enjoyed listening to. And uh, I'm sure there's quite a few that people love that, that we didn't get a chance to get to today so if there's someone that you feel like hey you guys really should have mentioned this person reach out let us know again hit us up on twitter i'm tim underscore costello 10 um would love to hear from you guys on some of the broadcasters that that you think we missed out on well, leave it in the comments give us a, a rating 
hopefully five stars. Uh, you know, that'll help us out. Uh, but yeah, if you if anything we've said is wrong or you think you know you want to correct us on, give us a shout out. Yeah, we'll take the uh, we'll take the PGA Tour line. We'll we'll allow viewer call-ins for rules challenges this week. <laughs> but as always, it's been a pleasure. Um, we will have a wonderful couple episodes up for you here this week, and then we'll be back at it again next week. I've been Tim. He's always Scott, and this has been the Snap Hook. Thank you.